Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're continuing our journey through the book of Hebrews. In fact, we're in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, and I'm glad you could join us today for this study. Uh, just a quick notice for you, if you're joining us for the first time, I would encourage you to back up and start at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. It'll just make more sense and you'll understand how each chapter builds upon the previous. But Either way, we're welcoming you to this time together as we seek to study and understand God's Word and apply it to our lives and our hearts. So I welcome you as part of this journey through God's Word. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus the Christ, who is our Savior, our High Priest, our Redeemer, our Lord the sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the ability to have a right relationship with you through Christ and that you speak to us through your word, that it is not just a, a dry text from so long ago, but it's your voice speaking to us. Give us ears to hear you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, as we come off of chapter 11 and that, uh, as it's many times called, that roll call of faith and that encouragement to, to be faithful and to stand in faith and act in faith in the way that they did in our relationship with God, you know, we're reminded of, of all of these great icons of the faith, if you will, and, and how it is about a relationship with God. It is about placing our trust in Him. Well, that has very real-world implications. All of those examples of faith weren't just a, a heart-held belief. They were a belief that shaped actions in life. And that needs to be true for us as well. We can't just claim to have faith in Christ, but then not take any actions based on that faith. And so as we get into chapter 12, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's kind of challenging well, not kind of, he is challenging these Hebraic background believers that are struggling with whether to continue in their faith in Christ or to fall back into Hebraic tradition, trusting in the old covenant or living in the new covenant and living out what that relationship means. That's the challenge. And he is calling them to task on it. And he's giving them words of guidance. And he's comparing, again, still how Christ is superior to the old covenant, to the old priesthood, to the old sacrifice, even to the law. He's laid that out in all the chapters leading up to 12. And now in 12, he really hits them hard with it. He hits them where they live in the reality they are enduring. And there's even a hint in this about the, the writing date for Hebrews. But let's look at the text. Starting in chapter 1, we find these words. Or it's not chapter 1, verse 1. We find these words, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not given your lives in your struggle against sin. So there in the first four verses, he really puts it out there for him. He holds up the challenge. He says, look, stick with it. Keep your eyes on the one who is the example, the one who is the champion, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep your eyes on him, not on what you're enduring, 
endure what you're going through because of the goal of your race, Christ. Now, there are several things going on here that we need to dig into and some misunderstandings we need to clear up. Let's start with the first one. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith. What is this huge cloud of witnesses? Well, there's differing views on that. Some would argue, oh, that's the heavenly host. That's, uh, you know, the that is the saints in heaven looking on those believers that have gone before us, watching our lives and watching our, you know, which, you know, just in a visceral level is kind of creepy. But really, I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. We're not talking about some supernatural cloud of those that have gone before. We're not talking about, you know, uh, the saints or, or whatever. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, that's talking about the host of faithful followers of Christ those that bear witness to the truth of God, of God's blessings, of the life of faith. He's talking about the fact that we don't do our Christian faith. We don't live out our walk with Christ in a vacuum. We do it as part of a body, his body, a body of believers. That is that crowd of witnesses. At least that's my understanding of the text. That this is the people looking onto our lives, that that crowd of witnesses, our fellow believers in it with us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Now, he shifted there from the cloud of witnesses, although that fits with the metaphor. Um, These four verses cover a standard motif, if you will, for Greco-Roman writing. It was common in that day to use the illustration of a race to describe the need to be focused and driven towards a goal. Uh, that was not an uncommon thing. We, we see that in, in historical writings from this period, from these cultures. So this is not unusual. This isn't something they wouldn't have heard applied before. But the way the author of Hebrews is applying it under the inspiration of God is to our walk with Christ. So in a sporting event, a race, you would have witnesses, you would have a crowd. Well, for us, that's the believers in Christ. It's the body of Christ. And let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. What is that? When we allow sin to mire our walk with Christ, we get tripped up. When we do not confess, not that we have to confess to be saved after we come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, but when we don't confess and clear out those sins that have cluttered our life, that have that have uh, crowded in on our relationship and our communication with God, they get in the way. They will trip us up. Don't let that happen. If it's in the way of your relationship with God, strip it off. Strip it off. Get it out of the way. It doesn't need to be. It is not valuable enough to allow it to be in the way of your relationship with Christ. So get it dealt with. Whether that's sin in your life, you need to confess and receive forgiveness for, whether it's uh, broken relationships in your life that God has convicted you about, that you have refused to be obedient about. By the way, that sin, if you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, see the study on James. Um, whatever it is, 
Maybe it's priorities. Maybe it's, it's personal goals, but whatever it is in your life that is in the way of you following God, it's not worth it. Strip it off. It's not worth it. And as this verse goes on, it says, especially, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Is it going to be easy? No. But we can endure it. God has set the race before us. So let's get the stuff that's in the way out of the way. And let's endure what we have to to run that race. But it's not just about the race, it's about the goal. Continuing in verse 2, he says, but do this by keeping your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the goal. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith, who, who starts it, who brings it to completion, to fulfillment. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the prize, the goal. Because of the joy waiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Understand, the cross was a humiliating way to die. We have uh, sanitized, if you will. We've made acceptable the cross. We've made it a Christian symbol, and it is a symbol of the sacrifice of Christ, of his redeeming work, his shed blood, of the new covenant. It has come to symbolize all those things for us in modern Christianity. But in the first century world, the cross was an instrument of torture and death. It was an instrument of humiliation. Slaves and non-Roman citizens were crucified. And they were hung out along major roadways in and out of the cities in which they were crucified. To hang on those crosses. To deteriorate out there as a sign to anybody coming in. Literally a sign. A billboard. To anybody coming into that city, this is what happens when you violate Roman law. When you stand against Rome, this is your fate. And, uh, you know, just the humiliation of it, there's shame involved in it. But, you know, not to be too graphic with it, but we definitely sanitize it in all of our movies and everything. Uh, when you were crucified, you were crucified naked and you were hung in such a way that it was meant to be humiliating to you as you died. So uh, just another level of torture and shame thrown on it. And here this passage says, because of the joy awaiting him, because he knew what was ahead, he knew what the goal was, what the prize was. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, knowing all that about it. He still endured the cross because of what was coming. Now he's seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of the hostility he endured from sinful people. Think of what they did. Then you won't become weary of giving up. After all, you've not given your lives in your struggle against sin. See, if we look at the example of Christ, then what we have to endure, what we have to go through, doesn't even begin to measure up. So if he is the goal, if he is that example we are to follow, that goal for which we are to strive for, we're not going to face anything that measures up to that. So we've got no excuse. We should endure. We should not become weary and give up because we don't have to. Because if we want that goal, if our eyes are set on him instead of what we are going through, then we will endure the race. 
so endure. Now, we will endure by keeping our eyes on Jesus, but we're also going to we're going to have to endure some of God's loving discipline in our lives. And so the author of Hebrews begins to talk to us about that, that some of what we face in hardships and, and struggles in this life are actually God disciplining us, God shaping us into the people he desires us to be. And that's not a people that are beaten down. It's not a people that just suffer all the time, but it's a people that are shaped into something. And he uses a great analogy here of parenthood. He says, and not just parenthood, not he uses it in such a way that you don't have to have experienced parenthood, but you in fact had parents and therefore you can relate to this. Hear what he says, starting in verse five. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Now that's from Proverbs chapter 12. But in that statement, he delivers this profound truth. Now, I will acknowledge children do not like to be disciplined. But the proper intent of a parent in disciplining their child is to shape their child, to help their child. Now, are there bad parents out there? Yeah. Are there abusive parents out there? Yeah. But the primary goal of a parent disciplining a child is to shape that child and to help that child. So here from Proverbs 12, we get this reminder, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. If he didn't care, he wouldn't do anything, but because he does care, he wants to shape you. And sometimes that shaping is unpleasant. Sometimes that shaping means pointing out those areas of our life that need work. Sometimes Sometimes it's discipline because we have been obedient and we need corrected. Nobody likes that, but we know that it's necessary. And if he's our heavenly father and we are his children, then we have to know when we are enduring the discipline that he brings into our lives, that it is because he loves us that he's doing it. Well, as the author continues in verse seven, he says, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you're illegitimate, that you're not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? In other words, if we in our humanity can look and say, you know, dad wasn't perfect, but when he disciplined me, he was trying to straighten me out. I know I personally can think of times I was disciplined and I full well deserved it. And that discipline helped me change. Now, if that's true in our human relationships, how much more so is that true in our relationship with God? If we are his children, is he not going to love us enough to help shape us to be better than we were? I think he will. In fact, I, not I think he will. I know he will. Well, let's look on in verse 10, because there he equates this earthly father to heavenly father. He says, for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. 
boy, there's a lot there in there. Um, we're not children forever. We grow up. We leave home. We have to face our own decisions and live our own lives. So our earthly fathers only discipline us for a few years. And they do it doing the best that they knew how. You know, I don't know what baggage you carry from your childhood. I don't know what your relationship with your father or your mother, whoever was involved in discipline in your life, maybe his grandparents, foster parents, who knows? I don't know what your situation is. But whatever that situation, the discipline that you received, it wasn't perfect. It was imperfect people doing the best they could with what they understood and what they knew how or what had been exemplified for them. Give grace to your parents. They disciplined you for a few years doing the best they knew how. And give grace to yourself if you are a parent. Your parenting wasn't perfect. I know as a dad, my parenting is not perfect. But we seek to grow in our obedience to Christ and we do the best that we can for our children. Well, he goes on. That's the way it is with earthly parents. But God, uh, second half of verse 10, but God, or about God's discipline, is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. So God's discipline is always for our benefit. It is always for our good. In fact, not just for our good, it's for our good because it brings us into a place where we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. In fact, in my translation I'm reading from here, it, there's a... is. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. There's a big dash. And then it says, it's painful with a big exclamation point. It's not supposed to be pleasant. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this new way. Discipline is intended to shape behavior. If we are going to follow Christ with our lives, it's not just doing what we see fit and thinking, oh, that's good enough for God. If God loves us and is in relationship with us and we with him, he is going to discipline us, to shape us, to conform us to the image of his son, as the Apostle Paul says over in Rome, Romans 12. Now, verse 12. So, Take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall, but become strong. Now here Isaiah is alluding, or not Isaiah, the author of Hebrews is alluding to Isaiah chapter 35 um, about being strengthened, about being renewed. About Why is he saying all this? He's saying, look, discipline's hard. Discipline's painful, but discipline has a purpose, and that purpose is joyous. That discipline is endured for a short period of time, but it yields benefits and, a, and an improved life that far outweighs the pain of that discipline. And so, what does that mean? It means that as you endure hardship, as you endure God's discipline in your life that is shaping you, conforming you to the image of Christ, understand that you can be renewed, that even though it's been tough, even though you feel weighted down and burdened, verse 12, take a new grip with your tired hands, strengthen your knees 
mark out a straight path for your feet. We're still in that mode of running the race. And you're tired and you're weary and you've been enduring and you just don't want to do it anymore. But keep your eyes on Christ. Understand what you're enduring is less than what he endured for your sake. And that sometimes we do have to endure that stuff because it's God disciplining us. It's God shaping us into something better that is obedient to him and a blessing to us. And so even in that fatigue, even in that weariness, we can take a new grip. We can strengthen those weakened knees. We can mark that straight path for our feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall, so that we who are weak and lame won't fall, but become strong. He's talking about that journey of faith. He's talking about putting into action the belief that we claim to hold dear in our hearts. He's talking about in our lives what it may look like to live out the faith the way the people listed in Hebrews chapter 11 lived out the faith. It's a challenge. It is a challenge given to each one of us, and it was a challenge given to those uh, believers of a Hebraic background that were struggling with whether they were going to continue running the race or whether they were going to give up. Don't give up. As we go on in verse 14, uh, he continues talking about how to endure. And, you know, not just do we endure the discipline, not just keeping our eyes on Christ, but understanding that we will also endure by rejecting some things in our lives, by saying, this can't be part of my life anymore, or, or shouldn't be a part of my life, period. In verse 14, he says, work at living in peace with everyone. Did you catch that? Work at living in peace with everyone. We should be in peace with everyone as best we can. We should work at it. Verse goes on. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Now, that's not we earn the ability to see the Lord. It's if we know Christ as our Savior and Lord, we live out that faith relationship in our lives. Those that are not living out that faith relationship in their lives don't have that faith relationship. Okay, the action is an outflow of the faith. The action doesn't replace the faith. You've got to have the faith and the action. Again, see the book of James. Um so what does it look like when we are living a holy life for the Lord? Well, we're going to be striving to be at peace with everyone. That doesn't mean we compromise on what the truth is. But it means we try to live the way the Lord is calling us to live, to live a holy life. Verse 15, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. In other words, we're in this together. So we need to have each other's backs. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. What is this poisonous root of bitterness? Well, some commentators read that and say that's actually a reference to idolatry. And it may be. But I think on the surface of it, it's pretty blunt too, because it comes right after talking about our relationships with each other, doesn't it? Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. What does that mean? It means join a church and have the pastor and the ministerial staff take care of you. No, it doesn't actually. 
doesn't mean that at all. It means that as a body of believers, as the redeemed, as Christians, we are to have each other's backs. Uh, we, as, as modern Christianity in so many areas, have twisted the model given to us in the New Testament. We have institutionalized ministry. All of us are called to minister in the body of Christ. Not to farm it out to someone else. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Means we care about each other and we invest in each other's lives. This isn't just ministering to them in the way we think in a modern context. This is, notice that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Be sure everybody's grounded in their faith. Be sure they're growing in their faith. Be sure. What's the command? Go and make disciples. Teach them to obey all I have commanded. Yeah, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes. Um, we've got to be involved with each other. And it's not, oh, go to Sunday school class and learn these things, or go to the church service and hear the preacher talk about it, or or listen to this awesome podcast that's online. It Okay, you know, maybe it's not awesome, but, you know, it, it is about personally knowing each other. And you're not going to be able to personally know everybody, but there's a circle of people around you that you can personally know and be invested in the lives of. There is a communal aspect to us doing our faith. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. You ever seen that happen? I have. One person with bitterness in their heart, which usually doesn't start as bitterness. It usually starts as something else, a perceived slight, a real slight, a refusal to forgive, anger over something, hurt feelings. I, it starts in all sorts of places, but it can grow into bitterness. And bitterness in one individual's heart has a way of corrupting many people because they begin to influence the people around them, not to grow in Christ, not to live for Christ, not to exemplify Christ in their lives and the grace of God, but instead they begin to exemplify the fruit of that bitterness. It can rip a fellowship of believers apart. But long before it does that, it starts ripping the lives of individuals apart. Watch out for it. When we are in this together, then we get to build each other up and we can also guard against these things that will tear us down in our walk with Christ and in our fellowship with each other. This is serious stuff. Goes on in 16, make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as a firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. Oh, wow, what an illustration for us. You can go back and read the Genesis account of Jacob and Esau and all that went on there. But the reality is that Esau didn't value what he had as a claim to the blessing of God, the birthright passed from Isaac onto his son. And because he didn't value it, when his brother said, hey, you want some of this soup I'm making? You're hungry? Sure, I'll let you have it. Let me have your birthright. Let me have that blessing that's supposed to be yours. Yeah, sure, whatever. 
that is an indicator that he didn't take it seriously, that he didn't value it, that he didn't see it as something of worth until later. And when he realized how important it was and he begged with bitter tears, it was too late. Now, the spiritual reality of that is this. The grace of God is available to all who will turn to him. But if we are godless and immoral like Esau, if we don't value the offer of God and the invitation of God for forgiveness and right relationship, if we can just throw it away like it's something unimportant, then understand there is going to come a day when we will weep with bitter tears, wishing we could get it back and is going to be too late. That's the spiritual reality. While you have opportunity to respond to Christ, to turn to him, to confess to him you're a sinner, to seek his forgiveness and to live your life in relationship with him. While you have that opportunity, take it. Don't wait for that day when you realize how important what you missed was and it's too late. Now, as we move into the latter part of chapter 12, we really get into almost a summation. The, the author of Hebrews is bringing to a culmination this whole argument, this whole discussion he's been uh, delivering throughout the rest of the book about the supremacy of Christ, about the covenant of Christ being superior to the covenant of the law. And that's really the, the emphasis of the book of Hebrews. Remember, he's writing it to a Hebraic Christian audience who is struggling and seeing some of its people begin to fall away from faith in Christ and instead live their faith out in the law, in the old covenant, in the religious practice of Judaism instead of finding an enduring faith in their relationship with Christ. And so he's been explaining the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. And at every turn, how Christ is superior to every aspect of the old covenant. Now, he kind of sums that up in the next few verses. So let's look at him, starting in verse 18. He says, you have not come to a physical mountain, a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, I or it must be stoned to death. That was God's command. So, I mean, there, this unapproachable mountain that they would be stoned to death if they set foot on it. And they, they this almost unimaginable spectacle of, of fire and darkness and gloom and whirlwind and a trumpet blast and thundering voice of God. Moses himself, verse 21, Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. This is Moses that stood barefoot in the presence of the burning bush and heard the voice of God. And now he's back at Mount Sinai and he's looking at what's going on. And he says, I'm terrified. You know, and I've had this encounter and I'm terrified. That, that's the old covenant. That's the giving of the law. That's Mount Sinai. But as the author of Hebrews points out, there's a different mountain. In verse 22, he says, no, 
because remember he started, you have not come to a physical mountain. Verse 22, he says, no, you have come to Mount Zion, Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So he's not talking about earthly Jerusalem. He's talking about the city of God, uh, end of Revelation, Revelation, what, 21? Um, new heaven, new earth, city of God, the new, new Jerusalem descending. Yeah. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people. And to be sprinkled, or excuse me, into the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Do you hear what the author says? In those two sections of scripture, in, in my Bible, they're grouped as paragraphs. You got the one that starts with 18 and the one that starts with 22. And there's such a contrast in the first one. He's saying, this is the mountain you didn't go to. In other words, not the place where you find your faith. That mountain with the, the fire, the darkness, the gloom, the whirlwind, the, the pronouncement that if you touch it, you're going to be put to death. This mountain that even for Moses himself was terrifying. He says, that's, that's not you. You as believers in Christ... And to the ones he's talking to as he's initially writing this letter, you as, as Hebraic background, Jewish background, who used to adhere to the old covenant, but now know Christ. Uh, for you, now you've come to a different mountain, Mount Zion, the city of God, heavenly Jerusalem, countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children. By the way, the word assembly there is ecclesia. It's the, the gathering. It is the church. It's the word that we translate elsewhere in the New Testament as church. You have come to the assembly, church, of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks forgiveness. What a contrast to the old covenant. And then he ends that verse, that sentence, that statement, verse 24, with that contrast again, back to the old covenant, to the back to the way things were, but not the way things are. Because right now in Christ, we experience the sprinkled blood, which speaks forgiveness, the blood of Christ shed on the cross that says, you have been made right with God. Your sins have been forgiven. Instead of, and this is the rest of the verse, instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Because when Cain killed Abel in that jealous fit, God said that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. It cried out for vengeance. It cried out for a price to be paid for Cain's sin.
The blood we're talking about is the blood of Christ, which instead of cries out, there has to be a price for sin. Somebody's got to pay. Instead, it's the blood of Jesus saying, I did pay for you. I love the message of the blood that speaks forgiveness because I have no other hope. Live in that reality. Don't fall back into living in the old covenant. Live in Christ. Now he's set the stage. He's drawn the contrast. And he gives, if you will, another warning, a, a concluding warning, in essence. Starting in verse 25, he says, Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. Now, who is the one who is speaking? Christ. It's God speaking. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. Those we can look back and see what God did with those who refused to listen to Moses, who rejected the message that Moses brought them. If that's how God dealt with them under the old covenant and the new covenant is so much more superior, the new covenant does so much more than just point out our sin, it covers it. Then what sort of terror are we going to face if we don't listen? If we reject this thing that is so much more and so much better, because we saw what happened back there. Let's not be the ones that figure out what happens here. Hmm? For if the people of Israel didn't escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. That's from Haggai chapter two. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only the unshakable things will remain. There's coming a day when God's going to sweep away all of creation except what has been redeemed. So that only unshakable things will remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. For our God is a God that brings that sweeping change. And what is left is what is unshakable, the new kingdom in him that we are all invited to. But we have to accept that invitation, that invitation into a right relationship with him. And when we do that, that invitation being accepted has to change everything. It's not, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll accept Jesus if, if that'll keep me out of hell. Sure. And we think of it as, oh, I've, I've got this card in my wallet that, you know, is, is, is my get out of hell free card. 
But otherwise, I'm going to ignore it. I'm just going to live the way I was going to live anyway. Uh, if that's the case with you, you don't know Christ. I'm sorry, you don't. What you responded to, uh, you, you, you don't know Christ. Not the Christ of Scripture. Not the Christ who did everything to redeem you and calls you to an eternal relationship with him. Because that kind of faith, that kind of encounter with Jesus, the real Jesus of Scripture, changes everything. That's part of what the author of Hebrews has been talking about for the past 13 chapters. So if you do have that kind of relationship with him, endure. Keep your eyes on Jesus and press on. If you don't have that kind of relationship with him, it's not too late. Turn to him now. Don't be like Esau with those bitter tears because it's too late later. Because the day is coming when it will be too late. Accept God's invitation. Turn to Him in faith, trusting in Him to forgive your sins. Trust in Him that His blood speaks forgiveness. And live out a life of relationship with Him. Don't give up on it. Run the race. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Christ, our Savior and Lord, for his blood that paid the price for our sin, that he is our high priest who lives, who is in your presence, interceding for us, that we might have right relationship with you and live that out throughout our lives. Father, help us to live out that relationship with you, with other believers. It is in Jesus' name we pray and express our thanks to you. Amen.